Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Falling in love with the writing of Jorge Luis Borges and Gabriel García Márquez inspired Amanda Barnes to move to Argentina in her early 20s, where she's lived ever since. An inveterate traveller as well as a trained journalist, she spent the last 14 years studying and writing about the Latin American food and wine scene. Her first book, The South American Wine Guide, is a superbly written and illustrated overview of this fascinating continent. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Very well, Tim. How are you? Uh, it's lovely to hear your voice. And you're actually in this country for once, not in South America, aren't you? I am. <laughs> You've caught me in uh, home territory, as in a different home territory. But I'm actually in a shed in Hampshire at my parents' house, um, which is a glorified office. <laughs> and, you, and you've just been over doing the Master Wine exam this week, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. So I just finished yesterday. So if I mumble my words and uh, say strange things, that's because I haven't had much sleep this week. <laughs> well, and I won't ask you how it went because that's like, you know that's nightmare to ask anybody how they've done the exam. But my, I'm confident that you're going to pass. You're halfway there already, aren't you? You've only got the tasting bit to get. So. Yes. Yeah, so we just had the three days of tasting, um, and the poor the poor guys who are, who are still doing theory are just finishing their theory exam uh, oh. this afternoon. Well, we're, we're, we're virtually toasting them as we do our yes. podcast. I mean, you were born and brought up in Hampshire, weren't you? Your parents were Anglo-American, your mum's uh, American, dad English. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, were they wine drinkers? Were you like the kind of kid who was smelling glasses of wine from the age of six? I wasn't, I hasten to say. But... <laughs> I, I don't think I was smelling it, but I was certainly probably drinking it at about 13. But my, so my mother is American. My father um, died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, but he's British and he used to travel a lot, which is where he met my mum uh, in the US. And I really was very fortunate as a child. We traveled a lot as a family. So we went to Europe at least once a year on holiday. And my dad hated hotels. So we would always stay in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by kind of, you know, whatever the, the, the local crops were. As a child, I really hated that because I wanted to be in the middle of the action and, you know, see cities and things. But actually looking back, I think that was really a key kind of a key part of my path into wine because experiencing wine in those in different countries and learning that wine was part of food so they always had wine on the table but they we definitely didn't really talk about it it was just you know red wine with cheese and when we were in Spain we would be drinking the local white wine and when we were in France we'd be drinking you know whatever was was going and and so that was definitely part of my kind of formative years in wine. And can you remember a, a kind of a particular, particularly special bottle you had as a kid or not? Well, it was definitely nothing fancy. <laughs> I think if we spent anything over 10 euros, it was a, it was a luxury. But, luxury. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think those, those moments, those experiences were, were really key. I mean, I remember having oysters. We used to go to France quite a lot because dad had a, a really good friend, Roger, uh, in 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 France, so we used to go and and have you know oysters at quite a young age and drink. I think it was Muscadet because we were right there, um, by the coast, and just you know those kind of moments of having wine with certain foods, 
Mm. That always sticks in my mind. Mm. And you, you, interesting degree, you did comparative literature, King's College London, mm. obviously a very prestigious place. And I read that you fell in love with Latin America through the work of, of, of Jorge Luis Borges, you know, Argentinian yeah. writer, and obviously Gabriel García Márquez, who I think was Colombian, wasn't he? Um, was that what made you want to go to South America, do you think? Definitely, definitely, 100%. That, that was a huge kind of influence. So comparative literature is, you know, very much world literature, and I really specialised in Latin American literature. Mm. Um, I wrote my thesis kind of comparing Homer's Odyssey to, like, two magical realism stories from South America and just fell in love with that genre. And I, I love magical realism. That That's the first thing I did this morning. I ordered, uh, you know, Salman Rushdie's new new novel like the, the, I enjoy magical realism as a yeah. as a genre and I I really kind of fell in love with the words of the authors and 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 kind of wanted to explore the continent through through literature but also you know music and people and conversations I was living in London so you know I, in order to kind of puff up my Spanish because I had to read a lot of these books in Spanish for the for the degree um, you know, I had lots of South American friends, my language buddies, and, and that's kind of what really kind of gave me this itch uh, and yearning to to go there and, and live there and experience it. Because yeah. you then did a, a, a further degree, didn't you, in journalism, the NCTJ, uh, mm. as a postgrad. I mean, was that useful, do you think? I mean, can, can journalism be, be taught? I mean, you're a very good journalist, but do you think you'd have been a good journalist anyway if you hadn't done the course? I don't think I, at the time, and I'm not sure if it's the same today, but at the time I had to have my NCE in order to be employable uh, for the newspapers. So I was actually working full time at some local newspapers. I had to move back to Hampshire to be able to afford to do it all and, um, and did my postgrad at the same time. And, you know, learning the rigour of, of being a professional journalist, I think, is something that we perhaps lack today. It gave me an enormous sense of responsibility um, and the fact that you really, you do need to be careful what you print um, or you should be careful about what you print, which I think, sadly, we are, you know, really lacking in our journalism today. And I think it would be wonderful if all journalists went mm. through, uh, you know, went through that process Um yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I I didn't do it formally, but I certainly did some courses, and you know, was I was edited by good people. My, you know, my father's a journalist as well, which helps. But you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of people today just write blogs. They've never been edited by anybody. I mean, some of them are good writers, but lots of them are not very good writers. And and as you say, they don't have that sort of professional code and ethic and realizing that, that as you say, that words matter. Words on the page actually have an impact on people's lives. They do, and I think in recent years we've. I think we've really seen the the negative impact of how, mm. you know, uncontrolled kind of journalism, We you can really change the world with mm. what people are allowed to print. And if mm. it's not truthful and if it's not authentic, then, you know, I do think it creates significant problems. And I certainly would never want to be that kind of journalist. So for me, I'm very glad that I did do that process and it did give me, you know, an ethical responsibility mm. to the reader and to the subject as well. Mm. And then you moved to Latin America in 2009. Uh, you had this love affair with, you know, the, 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 the continent, <laughs> really. Um, you know, I just wonder, you know, did you know it was going to be permanent? And, and where did you go first? And did you, did you just go somewhere and stay there? Or did you move around thinking, oh, I might try that, or I might go there, or I might try <laughs> Peru or Chile or whatever? 
I mean, I think I was only 23 yeah. or around then. I mean, I'm not, very young, good at, isn't it? I'm not very good at thinking of my, my yeah. numbers, but yeah, I was young. So I'd, I'd been out of university for two years working um, finished my, you know, postgrad, um, and I had wanted to go to South America and didn't feel like I was learning. I was now editor of the local newspaper. I didn't feel like I was learning anything there. And so, you know, saved enough money on my terrible, uh, it would be illegal to employ me, at, you know, at the, the rate that they were, um, back then, but saved enough money to survive a year on a very shoestring budget in South America and had this, you know, great idea that I wanted to go freelance and see if I could do it because I knew it was challenging, competitive, and I, I knew I was very young to attempt it. So I wanted to spend three months in Argentina learning about wine because I wanted to be a fet- better food writer. Hmm. I didn't think you could write, you know, well about food without without understanding wine. And then I was going to spend three months in Peru focusing on gastronomy and three months in Colombia focusing on travel writing. And by the time I got to Argentina, which was after two months, I actually started in Brazil. Mm. So I went to Rio and and spent six weeks there Mm. visiting a friend who had just fallen in love with her new boyfriend at the time. And so I actually spent most of my time with her dad drinking wine. And that was the first time I'd really had any South American wine. So I spent six (laughs) weeks with him going to like churrascarias and like drinking Malbec (laughs) and thinking, okay, cool. Like maybe, you know, like this is really interesting. Like I don't just need to learn about wine for, you know, to improve my food writing. Like this, you know, this is a a really interesting, fun thing to do. And so that's after that, I went, I started in Buenos Aires, spent Mm -hmm. three months there and realized that that's not the place for me. That wasn't the place Mm -hmm. for me to learn wine. I wanted to be in the vineyards and and learning, you know, in situ. And that's when I moved to Mendoza. And I don't think anyone thought I'd be still be there. Mm. I think my parents were actually quite disappointed when I didn't come back after a year and then I didn't come back after two years. <laughs> and it just kind of kept rolling. But, you know, I, I found a, a, my place. I mean, mm. everyone can have many places in their lives, but I found one of my places and, and just really kind of fell in love with wine. And, and I think Mendoza was such an, and still is such an incredible place to be able to, to live that experience mm. and have that day-to-day contact. And, and you never made it to Colombia then? I did eventually, but not, <laughs> not, not, not several years later. And it took me years to get to Peru as well. <laughs> so it was kind of a bit of travel writing, food writing that got mm. you interested at first. I just remember, what was the first article you published about wine? Can you remember? Well, so when I got to Mendoza, I'd already got in touch with this local wine and travel magazine that I'd read about online called Wine Republic. And so I started writing for them. So I landed and and became their kind of intern and then became the editor. It's a very small magazine, but it really gave me, it opened doors, enabled me to visit all the wineries with, you know, with the kind of backing that I would be actually writing something rather than just looking for, you know, a free visit. Um, and so that those were my first kind of articles where I was really just focusing on wine, but very much learning, you know, it was a learning process. And then the first um, wine publication, if you like, that hired me was actually um, Wine Searcher. When they first launched their editorial site, the editor got in touch with me and wanted me to write. She'd seen something I'd written about the harvesters of Mendoza. So, you know, the people working in the vineyards and the very difficult you know, conditions that they live in. Um, and she asked me to kind of pen a, a piece 
kind of you know day in the life of a of a grape picker and and very much looking at the challenging conditions in which they live in so that was my first you know freelance wine uh, wine article yeah and that's a that, that's a proper piece of journalism it's not you know yeah. here are my five favorite malbec no. i mean you know it's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and i and i avoid that i don't really like those kind of puff pieces of here are my favorite this or no. that i i much prefer the kind of in depth you know the travel side of yeah, writing the and the journalist of side of writing to yeah. I mean I just wonder how hard it was to get accepted as a, as a gringo you know you were 23 years old and you know you you've got a very friendly outgoing personality and the Argentinians are kind of like that too yeah. aren't they but what do they think shit who's this girl coming in 23 yeah, years yeah. old kind of writing about a lot of wines I mean there's three things that you've touched on there and all three of them were challenges gring mm-hmm. as in being a foreigner mm-hmm. um but that can be advantageous too because there just weren't any many foreigners there mm. visiting wineries. So actually, mm. I think in many ways, they were more flattered to kind of have a foreigner coming in and interested. Mm. Mm. Um, but then the ah, <laughs> the fact that I was female, which is a yeah. challenge, um, but not just in South America. But I do think that, you know, female professionals in, you know, in the writing industry don't get paid the same immediate respect as, as mm. men. So that was certainly a challenge to build up that, you know, that confidence of, you know, the winemakers. And then the third thing was obviously my age. And I do feel that I've spent, you know, I'm obviously in my later thirties now. So, um, that's not so much of a barrier, but I do think for the first few years, you spent quite a lot of your time at the beginning of interview, just proving that you were worth their time, that it was worth them speaking to you and that you, you know, you were old enough to have this conversation, (laughs) which, uh, you know, can be a challenge, but once you get past that, um, you know, uh, Argentina, incredibly welcoming, as you know, mm. Chile as well. well. I mean, everywhere in South America, once if you speak the language, yeah. you put in the effort and, you know, you you make that time for them. Mm. They are very willing to make that time back for you. I think you're right. And I think learning the language is, is key to it, really. Mm. That if, if, if you can be bothered to learn the language, then people appreciate it, even if you make mistakes, you know, when you're learning. But that's but that's fine. Tell us about 80harvest.com, because when did you start doing that? And I want to know... <laughs> These around 80, the world, word, and around 80 the world, with, around the world in eighty harvests, and I just want to know what are the weirdest places you've been to and the most memorable while you're doing it. <laughs> I think my first, yes, I started that in 2016, and it was a very, I mean, a very ambitious plan which I made in 2015. I originally was planning to visit eighty wine regions around the world within a year during their harvest time. So I plotted out. <laughs> So I plotted out this map of, you know, (laughs) all around the world. And I I did a Kickstarter, which failed, um, trying to get enough money to be able to do this. Um, And the idea of kind of capturing that moment of harvest, which is the most exciting and, you know, dramatic, emotional moment of the year and trying to explain what made each region unique um, by kind of, you know, going and kind of taking the temperature of each place obviously that was impossible to do and i and i just didn't have the funds but i decided to self-fund it anyway and just start Mm. doing it by myself and chipping away um and it's been incredible i've visited lots of very different places and 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 really interesting um kind of far-flung weird wine regions but i I think what's the weirdest tell us the weirdest for, for me i think some of the strangest the most interesting for me are sometimes the ones that where it's a challenge to make wine culturally. So Tunisia, mm. India, where, you know, winemakers have to 
you know, they have to sacrifice a lot mm. to be doing what they're doing. Mm. And, you know, it's often kind of frowned upon and, and difficult to work in an alcohol mm. industry. Mm. And when you, when you tap into the passion that they have faced with all these difficulties, that's where I think it's really impressive. And you get the same, you know, I find the same with, with climatic challenges, when you look at um, really extreme climates in the world where people are making wine, you know, in the depths of kind of cold Canada uh, and really struggling to do it and, and still doing it, or where they have that economic hardship, even in South America with all the small growers in the south of Chile or in Bolivia. And, mm. and you, you have people that really, you know, they're giving everything to, to farm and, and do something which they think has a greater purpose than just you know, their day-to-day product. And that is what I find beautiful in wine. Is, well, and is, it's the journalistic side of yeah. you, again, of what, you, of what you like doing. Let's talk about your book, because the, the, the book is amazing, really. And it it sort of started life as, a, as an online guide, wasn't it called The Squeeze magazine, the squeeze. I believe? <laughs> the Inside Squeeze to South uh, The America. Inside Squeeze. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and the in, then it kind of morphed into the book, didn't it? What happened exactly? When did it morph from an online thing into you thinking, hey, there's a book in this, right? Yeah, well, I mean, exactly that. I guess I started the squeeze. I had to change the name to the South America Wine Guide after a couple of years. And I still have the website, the South America Wine Guide. I mean, it's an enormous resource of information that I've been building over 10 years. So, you know, I changed the name because basically there were other websites called the squeeze that started appearing and, and some of them were less wholesome than mine. So I had to change the name. And so then it became the South America Wine Guide. And then I really, you know, people just started saying, when is the book coming out? Yeah. And I was like, well, there's no book, it's a website, you know, and I'd done an app and mm. and I'd had this winery guide for a long time. And I just thought, you know what, I should just do a book. You know, everyone keeps emailing me and asking me, <laughs> so I may as well just do it now. And and so I just started, you know, I, in 2019, I started writing it um, and, you know, and then we published it. In and was it self-funded, the, the, the publishing of it? it it's partially so yes predominantly um but partially i did win a award um a scholarship well an award which gave me eight thousand pounds which helped towards um helps towards that uh and yeah but a lot of i've put in all my say i mean some people try and put a deposit on a house i put a deposit on a book (laughs) (laughs) so i am in a shed (laughs) and and it was published in what may 2021 you know into the second edition but the final Mm. bits you completed in england because you got stuck here in the pandemic did you you came home and you couldn't get back till till when later in 2021 so i came i came for my master of wine for some course days in march 2020 was supposed to be a couple couple weeks here and ended up being 19 months because obviously the borders closed to England and then they also closed to Argentina and they were closed for 19 months. So it was a real challenge because I'd hired a local team in Mendoza. That was what I wanted to do. And they were, you know, I wanted to give like local female freelancers for my cartographer and designer and, and transitioning everything to, to trying to finish it all on Zoom was was really difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's good but that you did. mentioned you did it. <laughs> no, and, and it's good that you mentioned the designer and the cartographer because I think they're two very important bits of the book. Yeah. I mean, the book looks amazing. It, it really is a beautiful thing. I mean, uh, one reviewer, I think, on Janice's site, uh, Tamlin, compared it to owning a Frida Kahlo painting, which <laughs> I love. That I mean, how did you decide on on the design? Because it's a huge part of what makes the book so impactful. I think. 
Yeah, what the, I mean, that's part of the reason I self-published as well, because I wanted that creative freedom, that intellectual freedom. And, you know, I wanted a wine book that wasn't like many wine books. Mm. You know, I wanted a book that I thought reflected the kind of fun, the exploration, the, the colour that you get in wine. I wanted... You know, I wanted a cover. My the cover is very colourful, but I think wine is when you go into the vineyard, you see butterflies and birds, and you know the color. The grapes are all different colours; they're not all the same colour. And and I think it is a colourful, beautiful world that we live in, and and I wanted it to reflect that. So mm. I had you know a few conversations with my designer, where she's a very elegant. Um, illustrator and, and quite kind of minimalistic and pared back and I'm like more colour more colour <laughs> and she was like you can't have that many colours on one page I'm like yes you can just I, check it in <laughs> well, I, I, well you were right and she was wrong but anyway, I mean, I no like the, I mean it's her you know, she did it oh, she I, did just, it, right? I just I just forced just her to put her. more colour in yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and you know the, the book's cover says it was written by Amanda Barnes E. M. Egos, doesn't it I mean is that you being modest because it reads like you you know it's your nice turns of <laughs> phrase and your curiosity your amazing enthusiasm um were there other people helping you write it or were all the words yours in the end no I wrote all the words but um but I don't think I don't think a writer you know you cannot write without a subject and the subject is all that information that all my amigos my friends mm. agronomists winemakers you know friends that I just have glasses of wine with you know geologists everyone adds to your the person that you are the experiences that you have and I don't think you know I think it would be egotistical to pretend that it was just me I mean you know I have been influenced by every experience and conversation and visit that I that I possibly have had and Mm. would not be able to write a book of that kind of detail without all that information and, and generous advice of friends. I mean, how many years did it take you to research and write? So you started writing in 2019, but you were pretty mm. much researching it from, yeah. from the get-go in a way, were you? I mean, although you didn't have a book in mind, I suppose. Yeah, the writing was the least challenging part because it was very much, when I when I started writing it, I, you know, I'd been doing all this research without kind of knowing that that's what I was researching. So, you know, it, I say it's the product of 10 years of research because, mm. You know, I spent 10 years before writing traversing the wine part of the continent, the southern part of the, the southern cone and going to all these wine regions and, you know, taking notes and meeting people. And 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 that was the research that I kind of put in without really realising. And then when I started writing it, there were obviously some, you know, holes in my knowledge. I, I had to go back to Bolivia twice I had to go back to Brazil though you know there are some areas again I needed I wanted to go back to Peru you know there were some areas of Argentina and Chile that I needed to revisit so you know I I had to fill in some gaps that I felt you know I hadn't sufficiently explored and and most of those are the ones that are far less explored that were the hardest to write about because Peru Bolivia Brazil, I mean, even Uruguay, there was so little written in terms of, you know, wine books and and previous kind of, you know, investigations that actually Mm. that's where I really relied on my amigos, like speaking to people and and trying to get that information on the ground about, you know, the soil types and, and, you know, why, why the kind of wines, you know, the viticulture developed in this way and, and, you know, that that was the, the harder part um, of the research element. We're filling in those holes. But the 
yeah, that I mean that it's the product of many years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if you find this, but I mean, I do. Often, you you find there are kind of a couple of books on something, and they're probably ten years out of date, and you read them. Yeah, a lot of the stuff in them is actually wrong. You know, you talk to people, yeah. and they say, "Oh no, that's not correct." And so, you know, you're you're almost doing primary research. You think you're doing secondary research in some cases. You're using somebody else's book, but very often the book's not right. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's. I mean. I- Yes. And I think, as you know, as soon as you publish something, it's It's out of date. Yeah. So like there's that challenge as well. And you're you're always, you can't wait for perfection either. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing I really like struggle with sometimes, you know, with the book, that was definitely something that I got to the point where I was like, okay, Amanda, just print. You're never going to be able to, you know, you have to at some stage, it's like a winemaker. You've mm. you're like, okay, the wine is done. Mm. <laughs> Maybe I would have wanted a you little bit more of this, a bit yeah. of that, but you just have to go for it. Mm. Mm. Did you go everywhere, even Ecuador, Venezuela? I noticed <laughs> they're in the book. I did. So I didn't. Uh, yes, everywhere of my main six countries: Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru, Brazil, Uruguay. Mm. But no, I didn't go to the wine regions of Venezuela mm. and Ecuador. Um, I basically couldn't afford to, and I didn't have time. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe for the second edition I can do that. Um, obviously, they're very minor production regions, mm-hmm. uh, but I'd love to do that. So, you know, that's what I'm working on for the new uh, revised edition. Mm-hmm. And, and what were the biggest changes you noticed, I wonder, you know, in terms of South American grape growing, but also particularly winemaking, over this decade or so that you were researching mm. the book? Did you suddenly realise that, a bit like the fourth road bridge, by the time you got to the end of it, you realised that some of the stuff you'd learnt at the beginning was maybe not so 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 uh, so appropriate anymore? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the benefit of the fact that I wasn't writing for 10 years, I wasn't writing the book for 10 years, was that you haven't, you haven't seen all the kind of U-turns, mm. you know, you've... You, the book is very much my um, impression of where wine is today. Yeah. Uh, with that experience of having tasted it for the last ten years and and, and speak, you know, having these conversations, mm. and far more important than any of the tasting has been the conversations. Mm. So it's my impression of those ten years of conversations. Um, but I do think we've seen some huge changes and mm. exciting changes. Mm. And I think the biggest changes for me is is very much the you know, the self-confidence of, of winemakers, agronomists in, in truly focusing on their own terroir, their own particularities. Whereas I think, you know, maybe in the kind of early 2000s, and if you look back and, and taste back to some of those wines, uh, it, you know, 2000 and up to kind of 2015 even, mm. you, you get a lot of external influence uh, mm. from flying winemakers from abroad influencing the wines of Argentina or Chile. And I think, you know, in the last few years, it's actually been much more um, winemakers making, you know, using their experience from visiting other regions and having other conversations and tasting other wines and honing down on their particularities. Mm. And that's what I think is really exciting about South American wine today is tasting those, those differences of the regions because the winemakers have spent all that time recently just looking at what makes them special and not trying to kind of emulate um you know styles from elsewhere yeah particularly france or maybe california mm, or something exactly I just wonder, or australia who, had a big yeah, Australia as well yeah. actually i mean i just wonder which which winemakers particular but also viticulturists do you think have had the greatest impact 
in the time you've been writing about South America? Anybody, you know, are there like half a dozen people you think, God, they've really made a difference? <laughs> there's, there's definitely more than half a dozen. And <laughs> um, there's a lot that I do think have made many, a difference. But, but what I do think, as I, you know, have just kind of mentioned, what I think is the most important is actually, it's not that pendulum swing from one influence or one person. It's not that one critic or that one flying winemaker that has been influencing you know all of the wine scene what what i think now is is more that very kind of um you know it's much more multi-layered in the fact that i don't think we're going to get huge kind of swings of shift mm. so as we did maybe 10 15 years ago mm. i mean for example one of the key you know one of the great winemakers i think of south america is reta marcelo mm. retamal i know mm. you know him well as well mm. And I think he represents a lot of that change that we've seen, that shift mm. of winemakers who are really curious and spend their time going to different wine regions around the world, you know, once a year at least to taste, to understand, and really kind of using that knowledge to reinterpret their terroir and their places. Um, and, you know, and, and traveling extensively within their own country and, mm. and, and really kind of parring back. Mm. um and and stripping down mm. uh and and really making those quite transparent wines um and i think you know that kind of ethos you know that those mm. winemakers and i could list off you know 20 of them and give us give us five or six give us a few others you, <laughs> well most of like? those are the ones yeah. that i like uh, that i've included in the book with their yeah. kind of opinions as well but yeah. you know i think the michelinis do that um yeah. you know they very much have that uh in individual kind of focus I think, you know, Leo Arasu, I think, is an incredible winemaker. I'm really excited about everything he's doing in Atata um, today. You know, it's, it's often those winemakers who are really looking at the kind of vineyard mm. much more than, than the winery. I think it's true. I mean, Chile and Argentina are the two biggest wine producing countries in Latin America, obviously. I mean, can you briefly summarise why they're so different? I mean, if you just say, you know, if somebody said to you, why are they so different? I mean, what would you say? <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, Chile and Argentina are different, but I mm. think more important than that, you've got big differences within each country. Mm. So I find it very hard to generalize about Chile as one country, mm. because I do think we've got regions which are so entirely different. I think you could split the south of Chile from kind of Maui downwards mm. as a totally different country to, you know, mm. Maipo or the new wine mm. regions of Casablanca, San Antonio. You know, they are a world apart culturally, climatically, <laughs> and, and also in the, in their wines. Um, so I, 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 you know, I think what's really interesting is that regionality that we have, which makes, makes them so different. I mean, I think if we're generalizing about where the bulk of the wine industry is comparing, you know, mm. the kind of Santiago, Maipo, uh, you know, that kind of area, the Aconcagua region and comparing that to Mendoza, which would be kind of, you know, comparing like for like, I think there is obviously a big difference that, um, Argentina does have much more of a wine drinking culture mm. Mm. and that I think informs their wine a lot more whereas mm. Chile has been always has been a country that exports a lot mm. you know 100 years ago included so they they do have more of this kind of um, this focus which has been uh, not necessarily on what they drink but on you know on what they produce what they can, for, what they for can other, sell in a way yeah, yeah. For other markets and yeah. and so i think those are big differences that have changed the kind of culture of wine mm. but then you know equally i've just said that but i do think in the south you've got 
you know, in Itata and Bio Bio, you've got producers that make wines just for themselves. So yeah. you have got that wine culture in, in many places of Chile too, but that's the kind of marked difference. And then obviously climatically, you know, yeah. Chile's uh, a world apart with its Pacific mm. influence mm. Um, and Argentina predominantly is continental. So, you know, they're, we could have a conversation about every region of South America yeah. and, and how, and, you know, and split it up into kind mm. of individualities, mm. which I hope is where we're starting to get to. Mm. I think, you know, with great wine writers like yourself focusing on South America as well, like, I think, you know, I hope that we're beginning to get to that point where we can have conversations about, um, you know, the Guaytayeri and yeah. it, rather than just, you know, in the same way that we talk about Burgundy or, yeah. you know, or Senemilion or, you know, mm. let's talk about the crews, let's talk about the mm. regions and let's try not to generalise quite so much I when we can right. avoid it. <laughs> yeah, break, but yeah, break break down the, the you know, mm. the sub-regions and the crew and all those yeah. things. I just wonder, you know, you, you live in Mendoza, obviously, and you like living in Mendoza. I mean, what's it like there at the moment? I mean, we read all these horror stories about the the, the economy, you know, um, 109% inflation in April. Yeah. I mean, what's it like being on the ground? I, mean, I always find it's actually pretty normal, surprisingly. What do you, yeah, I mean, inflation living? is kind of normal in Argentina. I mean, ever yeah. since I've been there, it's been 30%. I mean, I don't, well, maybe it started at 20%. I don't really remember. But mm. I mean, I love Argentina and I really enjoy living there. And a lot of people have asked me why I don't, you know, live in Chile or, or why I wouldn't live in other places. But I, you know, I just think even though you do have this constant economic pressure and crisis and, you know, things have when you have economic instability, which you have in Chile at the moment as well, you know, you have political instability, you have crime, you know, there are challenges. It's not easy. But at the same time, I think when people live in kind of constant crisis, there's also a real um, human connection and a real focus on the beauty of life and the purity of life, you know, just enjoying those moments, living every day like it's your last. What and that, matters, yeah? Yeah, that's what yeah. matters. And mm. that's what I really enjoy about living in South America is that real, you know, that, that real focus on life quality, mm. which is irrelevant of your economic status, mm. irrelevant of, you know, I mean, obviously everyone needs necessities and I don't mean to simplify mm. it, but, you know, it's, it's that real focus on the enjoying the quality of your life and the people that you spend it with mm. and the, you know, the place that you are, the nature that you're surrounded mm. by and that lifestyle that you get in Argentina is, is incomparable. Mm. Here, here. I, I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's very true. Just as a little bit about how you see the future, I mean, not really talking as much about economics, more about wine styles. I mean, how do you think South America, obviously it's a broad brush, but I'm particularly interested in what you think about Chile and Argentina, maybe Uruguay. Um, how they're going to develop. And are there little known regions we don't know about that you think, mm. hey, keep an eye on that. It's going to be really good. And I wonder how much of a factor climate change is going to be in that. Yeah, well, interrelated, because I would definitely say keep your eye on the south of Chile and Argentina. Mm. Um, and I mean, really, you know, far south, kind of Patagonia and, and Osorno. And I really don't, even though the projects that we have in, this, in the deep south at the moment are very small, I think if we're thinking about the next 10, 20 years, we're going to start to see a lot more investment there for, for quality, for high quality wines, not for bulk production at all. But I do think that as a result of climate change and also stylistically, I think winemakers are looking for something, you know, with high acidity and, and, and you know, interesting kind of nuances to it. I, I think we'll start to see that um, develop a lot more in the future. 
And I also think this kind of reassessment of old regions and old vines, I, I hope that that continues. I hope that we don't lose uh, too much ground and, or too many old vines, because mm. I do think that revisioning of, of these you know, historic regions is really exciting. Mm. I mentioned Leo Arasu before, um, and he's, you know, one of those winemakers. I, I do think he's worth watching in Chile. And his work, you know, being in Itata and kind of devising or, or separating, looking at for these crews is not only through his experience of looking at the soils, but it's also through his experience of talking with villagers and, and finding out, you know, historically over the last 200 years, mm. what are the vineyard plots that have really kind of stood out and why? Mm. And so this kind of, you know, big cultural look back as well as, you know, looking into the geology and the climate and, and trying to discover, you know, what are the the really special places and the, the great sites. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and yeah. I think we get that in both new vineyards and old vineyards. And I think that's what is, you know, that's the kind of untapped wealth that South America still has to give is is re really honing down on these really exciting crews and and showing that through the wines, whether it's a new new place like Osorno mm. or whether it's very old uh, vines in Itata. Have you been to Santa Cruz? I found that there's now a 0.2 hectare vineyard in Santa Cruz, which is now the most southerly vineyard in the world. Have you been there? I, ha- I have been to Santa Cruz. I have not been to the 0.2 hectare vineyard. <laughs> We've got to go there, man. I'll <laughs> list. We'll, 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 go, we'll go together in your next uh, Okay, let's go. Me in a car ride with uh, good music. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I want to ask you something. Last thing is how you get away from wine, because the hobbies on your CV, I mean, they're, it's the most diverse <laughs> list of hobbies I've ever read in my life. I'm going to quote them at you. You know, a bit scary, actually. Boxing, flamenco, playing the drums, cooking. That's all right, yeah? Then you've got a speedboat license. Oh. You've had to go skydiving and you've even learned to fly a plane which of those do you most enjoy and have time for cooking yeah. <laughs> i mean like i'm a you know i'm constant i'm a i'm a typical journalist i love to try everything i i, I want to give everything a go the speedboat license was something i did in lockdown here and absolutely adored it was my it was my escape was getting on the water three or four times a week and just like hitting some waves and, 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 you know, pretending that I wasn't locked down. Um, and that was incredible. But, uh, but truthfully, day to day cooking every day. Right. Okay. And what about the skydiving? I've only done it once. Uh, that was in Pucan in Chile. And, uh, that was great. I mean, there's no better place than to like skydive over a volcano and, um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. I, I, I think I had way too much wine the night before and kind of agreed to do something. I was couch surfing and happened to be couch surfing at the house of two skydive instructors who were like, do you want to go skydiving tomorrow? I'm like, sure, sign me up. And then at 9am, you know, as the hangover was wearing off thinking, what am I doing in this plane with the window open? <laughs> it was good fun though. I don't regret it. Scary. Right. Last question is, is, you know, when are you going to hear about the MW? When were we seeing Amanda Barnes MW? End of of September. But then if I do get through, which I really hope I do, Mm. then I get to write my thesis, which Mm. I will really look forward to. And that's when I want to really focus on some of the kind of old Creole vines. So uh, it's going to be I a love. thesis on Creole, yeah, is it? On yeah, this old, for sure. Okay. 100%. If I can well, get through, that's what I want to write about. Good. Well, I'm sure you're going to get through, and I'm already looking forward <laughs> to, read, to reading the thesis. It's going to be great. Thank you, Amanda, too. thank you for sharing your time with us. Just where can people buy the book? It's Academy Duvan Library. Uh, yeah, can they get it through, through bookshops and, and all, all the normal? Yeah, well, you can get it anywhere as well. I mean, the it, but the best place is, is online at the Academy Duvan uh, website. Um, you can get the ebooks on my website, SouthAmericaWineGuide.com. 
gmail.com. Um, and then you can get it on the dreaded Amazon as well. Well, you have to mention them, I suppose. Anyway, <laughs> it's an amazing book. Thank you for putting so much incredible work into it and for producing that's such a delight to read. And you know, we didn't even talk about some things in the book that made me laugh, but um, wonderful <laughs> thing to read and, and just to look at. It's a thing of beauty. Anyway, lovely to see you, you and Tim. safe journey back to South America. See you in Santa Cruz. You will. <laughs> <laughs> I really admire Amanda's passion, intelligence, and sense of humour. Her book is a must-buy for anyone who loves South American culture. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Antonio Capaldo from Fio di San Gregorio in Campania. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at timatkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.